Good morning, everyone. I'm going to go ahead and get started with class today. Thanks for joining uh, Rooted today. We have another special guest, Mike Runsey, <coughs> is joining us today. So, before we dive in, though, we have some announcements. Coco and Carol's tonight at OC Weston, 6 p.m. Um, so that'll be a good time. Enjoy a time of singing, Christmas girls together. So at Weston tonight, 6 p.m. And then the last documentary Wednesday of the year is this week, uh, December 6th, 6.30 p.m., also at OC Weston. Um, the film is Homefulness, a documentary about the local nonprofit organization people loving Nashville and their work in the unhoused community of Nashville. So, this Wednesday, 6.30 p.m., O.C. Weston. Okay, if there's no more announcements, I will lead us in prayer, and then we're going to go ahead and get started with class. <clears throat> Lord God, we thank you for bringing us together again this morning, and we thank you for the sermon we thank you for the service and allowing us to meditate on the message from Luke that, that is dedicated to Mary. We ask that you open our hearts and our minds to that message and help us dwell on it, not just today, but throughout the week. We ask that you be with those who are grieving, who are hurting, who are sick, who are not able to be present with us today. Only you know in their hearts what's going on and, and, and their situation, but we ask that you open up doors for us to help them in whatever capacity we can. We ask that you be with Mike today in this class as we learn more about wisdom and as we get near to wrapping up this series um, on wisdom. We thank you above all else for your son and the sacrifice that you make for us and the sacrifices that you continue to make. Help us know you better each and every day. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Mike, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself first? Um, and then we can get started with your message. All right. Um, uh, I uh, married to Nadine for uh, 49 and a half years. We celebrate 50 in June. We have two daughters. Uh, one, uh, Rebecca, attends Otter Creek Church with her family. Uh, another daughter lives in East Nashville. Uh, we are uh, grandparents to seven, uh, from uh, 18 and a half down to almost two, one and a half. So we've got the full range of grandkids, which is pretty nice. The two oldest ones are twins, and they are, one is in uh, uh, at Sanford University in Birmingham. The other one is uh, doing a YWAM. YWAM is uh, Youth with a Mission. She happens to be, uh, the training center is in Hawaii, which sounds like a tough gig. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, they will, uh, in a few weeks, will be uh, dispersed to uh, all parts of the world for them to live out a mission for, I think, three plus months or so. And uh, I think she's actually, you know, the fires in uh, Hawaii were pretty devastating. And I think her group uh, may be... Uh, going there to work uh, to help them kind of recover. It's a pretty long process, but uh, 
they have a team leader that happens to be, um, she and her husband uh, are waiting their first child, and so they want to stay closer to a, a hospital. So that's why her team may end up staying there. And, uh, anyway, I uh, uh, have been in ministry for 50 plus years and a marriage and family therapist, um, part of that for 40 years. And, I uh, retired from my executive ministry position here at Otter Creek four years ago, and at the end of this year, I'm going to retire from my counseling uh, work. So I'm entering into a world of mostly retirement. I'm still going to be doing pastoral care for Otter Creek Church, which I very much uh, enjoy and appreciate to be able to walk with folks who need uh, a little voice of uh, encouragement along the way. So that's it. Unless uh, you have questions, I could spend the entire time talking about my life. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it as well because of your practice and how, and I'm probably will get into this, but how you've seen wisdom displayed in that capacity yeah. of your life. Well, uh, you know, early on um, in the in the counseling world, uh, you you operate from a body of, of material, but models and techniques and things like that. But I found myself uh, in the last at least 20 years uh, just seeking the wisdom of God going into a session. Say, I, I don't know uh, if I have the words, but I know you do. You know what I need to know. I pray for insight. Uh, so seeking the wisdom of God is pretty fundamental to the way I operate because um, everybody is unique. Everybody brings a unique situation to the counseling office. Uh, and, and so for me, or even in ministry, I mean, it just wisdom is such an important component. I think God is the God of wisdom. Why not start there? So I love this class, which is rooted in the wisdom of God. And I just think that's just a, a beautiful uh, theme. And, uh, yeah. Awesome. So. Well, great. <clears throat> so as I asked you to prepare for this class a few weeks ago, what sort of things... Work, it went through your mind, and then what did you settle on as far as wisdom is concerned? Yeah, so um, in the email Isaac sent was uh, choose a, a passage from the wisdom literature or from the Old Testament that speaks to you regarding wisdom. And uh, uh, I, I sidestepped the wisdom literature, and there's a lot of wisdom in there. Uh, and I, I went to the book of Joshua. Uh, and uh, went to the chapter 24. You're, you may be familiar with that uh, chapter. Has anybody else used that as, nope. a, as a wisdom? <laughs> nope. So uh, I, I just love it because there, there's a lot of things that emerge out of uh, Joshua 24. You'll know Joshua as the, the leader of Israel who uh, was appointed after Moses passed away. And uh, Joshua has an interesting story himself, but here at the end of his life, he... He approaches the people of God with, um, with some very specific wisdom, I think. And I, I'm going to read the passage. I'm going to start with verse 1 of uh, Joshua 24. And I think I may have printed this out. It's from the message. So it's going to be okay. a, little, a little bit uh, uh, maybe looser than an NIV uh, passage. But um, here, here's what he's saying. Joshua called together all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. He called in the elders chiefs, judges, and officers, and they presented themselves before God. Then Joshua addressed all the people. And this is what God, the God of Israel, says. A long time ago, your ancestors, Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, lived in the east of the river Euphrates. They worshipped other gods. 
I took your ancestor Abraham from the far side of the river. I led him all over the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants. I gave him Isaac, and I gave Isaac Jacob and Esau, and I let Esau have the mountains of Seir as home, but Jacob and his sons ended up in Egypt. I sent Moses and Aaron, I hit Egypt hard with plagues, and then led you out of there. I brought your ancestors out of Egypt. You came to the sea, the Egyptians in hot pursuit with chariots and cavalry, to the very edge of the Red Sea. Then they cried out for help to God, and he put a cloud between you and the Egyptians, and then let the sea loose on them and drowned them. You watched the whole thing with your own eyes, what I did to Egypt, and then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the country of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought you, but I fought you and, and took, you took their land. I destroyed, <clears throat> says, I fought for you and took their land. I destroyed them for you. Then Balak, son of Zippor, made his appearance. He was the king of Moab. He got ready to fight Israel by sending for Balaam, son of Baor, to come and curse you. But I wouldn't listen to Balaam. He ended up blessing you over and over. I saved you from him. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The Jericho leaders ganged up on you as well as the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gershashites, the Hiphites, the Jebusites. But I turned them over to you. I sent the hornet ahead of you. It drove out the two Amorite kings. Did your work for you. You didn't have to do a thing, not so much as raise a finger. I, landed, I handed you a land for which you did not work, towns you did not build, and here you are now living in them and eating from vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. So now, fear God, worship Him in total commitment. Get rid of the gods your ancestors worshipped on the far side of the river, the Euphrates, and in Egypt. You worship God. Let's just pause there for a moment. I, I just think, here's Joshua at the end of his life, He's trying to capture the attention of the people of God. He's bringing all the, the chief, the priests, the, the elders, the leaders all together. All, all the people of Israel. And he starts with reminding them something of great importance. There is a God who has been leading your path. He has seen things way ahead of what you've seen. And he's walked with you every step of the journey. And I just find that to be fundamentally important. Anytime we face things of challenge, and we face a lot of things, we, we're in a, a hard time of our world's history. And, and for us to get so focused on what's happening either uh, beyond the oceans, like in Ukraine, uh, the Ukraine uh, war, or is Israel and Hamas, um, in Africa, there's, there's lots of rebels that are just you know, attacking homes and killing people. We live in a really harsh world. How do we find peace in, in the midst of that turmoil? And I think there's wisdom in building on a platform of our history. There's a God who never leaves us alone. He's always present. And you think He's seeing what's happening in His world. And I find comfort in knowing that He knows more than what I know or what any of us knows. He sees it all. He sees beyond. And that's where I place my faith. Like, God, I know this is not the end of it. And in some ways, Joshua's reminding them, there's always a story beyond. But let's not lose sight of the story that has been, that God has been faithful. He has been present. He has been with you through every step of your journey. Does he like it? No. Is he always clapping his hands when horrible things happen? No. It's just that he is aware. And I find comfort 
in knowing that God is aware of our journey. Everything we're encountering, how horrible it is in the moment, we have the power of the one true God that's walking with us. And for us to embrace His presence allows us to have strength and wisdom beyond what we have on our own. And I think that's what Joshua is reminding the people of Israel here. You've got strength and wisdom beyond your own. And you have faltered a lot. Like these people, they adopted foreign gods. So you look at at verse 15. If you decide that it's a bad thing to worship God, then choose a God you'd rather serve and do it today. Choose one of the gods your ancestors worshipped from the country beyond the river and one of the gods of the Amorites on whose land you're now living. Stop there. He's in essence giving them permission. If that's what you want to do, do it. I'm not going to hold you back. Go for it. If you want to live on your own, you want to do it your own way, fine. Just do it. Just make a choice. Don't be wishy-washy. And I think, hmm, sometimes we try to work so hard convincing them not to do it that we sidestep their ability to choose. And Joshua, in this sense, is recognizing God gave you this in the Garden of Eden, the freedom to choose. Act on it. If you're not going to accept the one true God, then at least choose a God. Even if it's a false God, at least choose it and honor them. And he says, as for me and my family, we're going to worship God. I've made my choice. I know what my status is. And I find verse 16 interesting. The people answered, no, we'd never forsake God. Never. We'd never leave God to worship other gods. And of course, I'm thinking Joshua's just scratching his head. He says, well, yes, you have. That's what you've been doing. But he doesn't say that. They continue, God is our God, verse 17. He brought up our ancestors from Egypt and from slave conditions. He did all those great signs while we watched. He has kept his eye on us all along the roads we've traveled and among the nations we've passed through. Just for us, he drove drove out all the nations, Amorites and all who lived in the land. Count us in. We too are going to worship God. He's our God. It's kind of like maybe they are coming to this point of acknowledgement. Like we're recognizing the story you told us about God. We know that's true. He's been there for us. We trust Him. We're giving up these gods. We want to worship the one true God. Then in verse 19, Joshua told the people, you can't do it. You're not able to worship God. He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He won't put up with your fooling around and sinning. When you leave God and take up the worship of foreign gods, He'll turn right around and come down on your heart. He'll put an end to you, and after all the good He has done for you. The people told Joshua, No, no, we will worship God. So He's kind of backing them into a corner in some sense. And maybe He's using a little bit of reverse psychology in some respects. You know, saying, I don't think you can do it. You've already shown you're you're kind of weak. You've already shown that you can't follow the one true God, even though He's been with you all of His entire, your entire journey. But Joshua maybe is a little fed up with their wishy-washiness, trying to get them to really land for sure on who they say they want to be. And verse 22, 
So Joshua addressed the people. Well, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen God for yourselves to worship Him. Yes, they said, we are witnesses. And Joshua said, well, now get rid of it. Get rid of all the foreign gods that you have. Say an unqualified yes to the God, the God of Israel. See, so Joshua could see that they were idol worshipers. He could see that they were wishy-washy, that they weren't true in their commitment. And Joshua said, get rid of those foreign gods. You must say with an unqualified yes to God, the God of Israel. And the people answered, verse 24, we will worship God. What he says, we will do. Joshua completed a covenant for the people that day there at Shechem. He made it official, spelling it out in detail. Joshua wrote out all the directions, all the regulations into a book of the revelation of God. And then he took a large stone and set it up under the oak that was in the holy place of God. Joshua spoke to all the people. This stone is a witness against us. It has heard every word that God has said to us. It is standing witness against you, lest you cheat on your God. And then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his own place of inheritance. So now there's a symbol of their commitment. This stone in the holy place of God. It's like, it's a sign. And, and you know, you think, wow, we know later on what happens to the people of God. <laughs> I mean, it's not a secret. Obviously, they lose sight of, uh, of their commitment. But I think the wisdom for me in this passage is there's some intentionality on Joshua's part. He wants them to know as the leader of Israel, my family and I, we are going to stay faithful to God. We're going to do everything we can to remain faithful. I'll challenge you. I don't know if you're going to be able to give up the gods or not. I challenge you. But then they said no. I mean, he kept pressing them and pressing them until they finally said, no, we will. And perhaps that generation was faithful. We know that it doesn't take long for people to begin to waver. They get frustrated in the moment. They get discouraged. The, the invitation of idols or the power of the culture becomes very, very powerful even for us. And maybe you've even experienced it on your own journey where you made a definite commitment to follow God and then the culture began influencing you and you may have wavered and maybe even moved away from God for a moment or, or maybe that strengthened you. Maybe you held high the, the symbolism of your commitment like I'm going to be a follower of Jesus and some people do that in different ways. We know that baptism is a symbol to the world that we have left the world for Jesus. Uh, our partaking of communion each week, it's symbolic to remind us, I'm saying yes to Jesus one more day. I'm committing my life to Him one more day. And, and that's a powerful reminder for us uh, to make sure that we keep the idols of the culture and keep the influence of the culture away from us. I just love what Joshua did with them. He challenges their allegiance. He he, he backs them into a corner in some ways. And, and then he writes out specific guidance for them. And they have the ability to read through that. Just like we have the ability to read through what our commitment to Jesus stands for. But, but for me, I, I love the symbolism at the end with the stone in the holy place. And I think, hmm, what is my stone? What is my reminder that every day I want to remain faithful to Jesus? 
because I know the history and I've seen it. Uh, as I've mentioned, there there have been lots of things along my 70-year journey of of Satan's temptations to pull me away, to pull me closer to the culture, to move me away from being on the the path with Jesus. And and I'm I'm really glad. It's been sometimes it's been my community. Sometimes it's been my wife. Sometimes it's been my children. Sometimes it's been my grandchildren. Sometimes their simple faith is so powerful that I go, wow. God, I never want to lose sight of the simplicity of your love for me. And I think if we go through our journey with our eyes wide open, that's when God's wisdom emerges and we see the simplicity of His love and devotion that He's always present. It's simple for us, but we don't feel it. And you think, how do, I, how do I hold on to that? And sometimes I think we do need something like a stone. Uh, maybe it's a cross around the neck, or maybe it's um, the Bible by the bedside. Uh, maybe it's uh, the practice of daily meditation and daily prayer. Maybe it's the writing out of prayers in a journal. Or, I don't know. It'd be interesting to hear, what is your way of staying on the path of Jesus? Let's just pause for a moment and ask, what have you found to help serve you well in keeping you on the path in light of all of the influences of the culture? Yes. That's what the people of God were encouraged, wasn't it? After the Shema, you know, right upon the doorposts. You know, everywhere you see them, be reminded of the presence of God. And when we do, it's like that can help us have some strength because we're reading truth and it's just reminding us this is what we've adopted and that we hold on to. Yeah, beautiful. Someone else? What do you see as a reminder to stay on the path? the lives that others have lived before us that we're encouraging. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah do, you, do you think about people that have lived before you and go, I love that this person mentored me. <coughs> um, I, I've got a lot of mentors in my journey as a minister. Um, one of the first mentors, uh, I was so fully committed to serving God that I thought, Serving God was at the top of my list. And it even meant maybe a sacrifice of my time with my wife and my time with children. And, and this wise mentor said, hmm, Mike, your commitment to God is critical that he's number one. But when did you make a commitment to Nadine? And I said, oh, it was June 29, 1974. He said, oh, yeah, that was an important commitment. And... and and did you realize that when you made a commitment to her that you were also making a commitment to your family even though you didn't have children at that time? I said, I don't know if I really thought about that. And he said, and, and when did you make a commitment to this job? And I said, 
oh, uh, that was, and so I gave him the date, and he said, huh, so that actually was fourth. Commitment to God, commitment to Nadine, commitment to family, and then commitment to your job, and I go, he asked me, why did you elevate that to number one? And I go, I thought that was my commitment to God. He said, no, that's your job. They can fire you tomorrow. And I go, oh. It just helped me reposition my commitment idea. You know, so the mentors of the past, thank you for, for highlighting that. Um, I was going to share a story of, of my grandfather. You asked me to share a story. Uh, it may just fit in well, because my grandfather uh, ran a neighborhood grocery store. And uh, about 10, <clears throat> I started working for him. Uh, I'm doing quotes uh, for those of you who can see me. Working for him at age 10 on Saturdays. I'd go in and I'd sweep the floors. And he, he made a little um, uh, apron for me. I thought about bringing it today because I still have it. It said, highs cash grocery on it. You know, it really made me proud. And I'd sweep the floor and help stock the shelves. And, and so, you know, I really felt like I was something. But he was teaching me the value of, of working hard and, and uh, saving money and and he asked me what my goal was to save money for, you know, and just teaching me those finer things of life. And I love spending the night because I'd get up early. He would be sitting in his little kitchen uh, nook area, and he'd be reading the Bible and uh, drinking a cup of coffee. And I have that cup of coffee. I have a coffee mug that he used back then. My grandma would make coffee with mostly milk and sugar in it. Uh, so I started <laughs> drinking pretty young uh, at a young age. <clears throat> Uh, but, you know, it's just like he's modeling for me. He read through the Bible 114 times. I have his little uh, sheet that he would mark out every time he finished the Bible. He was on his 115th time when he died. That man just influenced me in a quiet way. I don't even remember if he ever really said any statement of truth that I hung on to, but he was modeling for me. Well, one Saturday morning, three of my... Uh, grade school buddies walked into the store and they were walking around and here I was in the back sweeping and they're going, hey, Runcy, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed. Thinking, they're saying, I've got this apron on. I'm thinking, this is really kind of, you know, I'm feeling kind of bashful and I maybe I ought to slip in the back room. And, and they were up there looking at candy and whatever, popsicles and things. And after about five or ten minutes, my, my grandfather said, uh, hey, Mike, can you come up and check these boys out? And in that moment, my, my view of self just bumped up. It's like, he's letting me run the cash register. He's letting me check these guys. So I walk up behind that, and they're impressed that I've got the highest cash grocery apron on. And I walk up there, and I said, so what are you guys buying today? And so they had all their stuff there, and I'm counting it out. You know, we're talking pennies and nickels at the time. And, and you know, I'm cha-ching, cha-ching. They go, you get to run the cash register? They were so impressed. And all of a sudden, I mean, I'm building up this image like, wow, my grandpa really has confidence in me. He taught me how, but he'd always stood beside me. He wasn't even around. I was doing the whole thing by myself. After they checked out, they went out and sat on the stoop, and my grandfather, I finished cleaning up, and I'm walking around the counter. He says, why don't you grab yourself a popsicle and go out and join? It'd be good to have a break with me. So I did, and, and you know, they were just talking about, like, what do you do on Saturdays? And, and I'm telling them the story. But I, I think back on that moment that there's such wisdom in how my grandfather is guiding me. He's teaching me, but then he just hands over the keys, so to speak, to check these boys out. I'm a little nervous at first, but 
they're impressed that I'm able to run this thing by myself. And I think back to him. What he did for me that day was build in me some confidence that, that when I'm trained, I can do it. And, and that I can do it with the help of God because he modeled for me that we're... His father was a minister, by the way, so he learned firsthand the value of serving God's kingdom. And he was modeling for me that we're always serving God's kingdom even when we're sweeping floors, even when we're checking out, even when we're stocking shelves. And so, you know, I really appreciate the, the idea of building on wisdom from those that lived before us. So. How about others? Other things that you're using to kind of help keep you on that, that path of commitment, the stone of reminder, if you will. I'll go ahead, Dave. For me and David, it's like being here. And it sounds the old fashioned Sunday morning, four o'clock or Sunday night, you know, Wednesday night, but we're, we're here. Like, but it's that habitual, like, there are some days where we're just here out of habit. Like, I'll be honest, like, I'm just here out of habit. But it's that strong reminder of this is a part of my life. God is a part of my life. And so it's not a bad habit. Yeah, that's a good one. It's the regularity, but it's also community, because once you're here, you're blessed. Mm -hmm. And you go, oh, I wasn't expecting that blessing. Right. Yeah. That's very, very powerful. I think also, similarly to, like, people who pass that um, kind of memory or ways that they've been close to, I think also surrounding yourself with people um, that also keep you um, reminded. So, like, my mom talking to her and just talking to her about daily things going on and she always sort of makes sure to bring the conversation back to God. Or, you know, surrounding yourself with friends who always include God in the conversation. I think it's um, people also are really great um, ways to um, hold you accountable. Yeah, that's so good. That's kind of what the stone was doing for Joshua and the people of God. It was a reminder. It was a, an accountability. Now, he was going to write up the guidance for them to have uh, access to more of the, the messaging, but it's like, who's holding us accountable? Who's lifting us up in prayer? Who's reminding us of what our heart has said about God and following Him? You know, Because we know there's an evil one. He's prowling about, looking for whom he can devour, and when we're in those weakest moments, we, we tend to kind of lose sight of the clarity because it's just right in our face, you know, and this can be hard, hard times, difficulties. Um, you know, I, I get real frustrated with politics, so I just don't listen to the news anymore, and, and I find my life is a whole lot more at peace because I just, I don't know what's going on, uh, except if people tell me that I do. Uh, but it's like, oh, I'm okay with that, because I, I think I can spend my energies elsewhere. And in some ways, it's what Joshua was doing when he said, as for me and my family, we're making a commitment to serve God. There's that intentionality that I think is a critical word for our journey with Jesus, but our journey in life, our journey in marriage, uh, our journey in relationships. Uh, it's that intentionality that's leading the way and, and what you're describing of uh, community and, and people and, and parents and um, 
words of scripture on the walls and doorposts of your home. Those are reminders of our intentionality because, wow, life is challenging. And what's interesting is that the, the neat thing about this passage is that Joshua reminds them of people and events that happened in Israel's past. And he's not pointing to specific laws. He's not pointing to specific stipulations or commandments. But he's bringing them back full circle to what had just transpired in the wilderness, in Egypt. All of those events contain wisdom in them. But it's not until after the fact that they had just gone through all that turmoil where Joshua can pull out mm. practical advice for them as they step into the promised land. Mm -hmm. Which I, I, And you get these kind of... This is, it's basically a sermon, right, that Joshua is mm -hmm. preaching to them. If you look later on in time, right before the New Testament era, we get all these books um, written in the names of famous biblical figures like Moses, Joshua. Now, they probably weren't written by them, but they were written in a time where Israel was in conflict with the Roman Empire, right? The Maccabean era. And it's always pointing back in time via these... Uh, famous figures, mm -hmm. and so there's always wisdom in events and people. Just like Book of Job is when we come back to you a lot. It's that book itself is wisdom, but it's about his life. Yeah. And at the end, you you realize that wisdom was found in his suffering. Right. So, and you know, Job's highlighting the presence of God mm -hmm. when his friends were highlighting, "No, you must, you must not be faithful. Right. Look at what what's happening." And he's reminding them, "No, I am." But I, I think that even goes along with what, what Stephen, you know, at the time of his stoning, you know, he's reiterating yeah. the, the people of God. And, and, you know, it's like, wow, there's, there's history here. Right. Uh, the Hebrew writer, you know, when he talks about those that lived before them, uh, it's just like there's something valuable about our history and tapping into uh, what, what has been presented to us before. Uh, history is both good but can also be painful. And it's, yeah. the question is, what can we learn from it? Yeah. And it takes, it takes conscious reflection. Like, history, you know, we always say history is the greatest teacher, but it's only, history is just events. Like, you can't literally recall those events, like, they're gone now. You have to remember, but by remembering, you're consciously reflecting on what had happened in the past, what transpired, and what does that mean for me or as us collectively, and what does that mean going forward? And that's, I think that's the powerful thing about history is there's wisdom in history, mm -hmm. depending on how you reflect on it, right? Right. So. Yeah. <clears throat> and going back to your question, for me, I have to, I have like a, a library of books and one of my friends uh, who goes here, he, he bought me a, like a devotional dad journal for when Sonny was born. But for me, I have to put that on my coffee table so when I wake up in the morning, it's there. Mm. And I'm forced to, mm -hmm. in a good way, to, to read it and reflect um, in it. Mm. Uh, but for me personally, yeah, that's sort of my stone. I have to set it there so I can look at it. Otherwise, it could get lost in my yeah. the other books. Yeah. <clears throat> well, when you're... When you're in busy times of life, you know, it's kind of like those things are easy to overlook. And so, 
what right. what do you put in your way to stumble over it? So you go, oh, <laughs> oh God's reminding me yeah. of, of this. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so interesting. And I think you'll find throughout life, and, and <clears throat> certainly throughout Scripture, there's lots of these moments where they build something, you know, to create a reminder uh, for generations to come, whether it's a well or or stone or what whatever it is, uh, you know. And for us as Christians, the cross has become a powerful symbol. Uh, and we know, as Paul writes in in uh, the Corinthian letter, uh, the cross to most people it's just foolishness. I mean, they can't get, get their mind around like, what does that even mean? But for us, it's the power of the resurrection. We place all of our faith on that event. Uh, you know that there was a Jesus who died for us and was raised from the dead. And we go, oh, that's right. That's a hard thing to wrap your mind around until you accept it on faith that this is God's plan of redemption. And the, the next generation is almost forced to ask, you know, what the meaning is. What's the meaning of the stone, in other words? And the, it's oftentimes symbols are better than using words, right? I mean, right. there's just a full, it can cap, encapsulate so much, just in one symbol, one uh, artifact, and mm -hmm. so forth. Yeah. yeah, for sure. We do have five minutes left. If anyone wants to chime in still and share something that re might relate to to Joshua, wisdom. I thought this was neat. You were able to pull from technically not a wisdom book, right? It's a historical book, but again, there's so much power in narrative that I was. I'm really grateful you brought in Joshua 24 because I had never really considered that um, because I read I think in part I read this sermon from Joshua just in light of the entire book itself like and there's a lot of violence there's a lot of war and all that in the book of Judges and Joshua but um, reading this especially in light of our class is I think powerful so thank you for, for bringing that today Mike Well, it could be a, uh, a quality of getting older uh, that nostalgia sometimes surfaces. You know, it's like, oh, I want my grandchildren to, to know the stories of their great-great-grandparents because they, they were my grandparents, but they're never going to know them. And they're like really old people. And, you know, like pictures of my grandparents... <clears throat> my great-grandparents were all black and white, you know. Um, my great-great-grandparents, very few pictures of them, you know. And I'm, I'm thinking, like, my mom, you know, my, my great-grandchildren probably won't even know her. <laughs> my, my grandchildren, I mean, she's 93, so, you know, the little ones, they, they may not really ever get to know my mom. Uh, but they don't know the others, you know, my dad or, or my wife's parents, because they, they've already passed. And you think, so you got to think about how do you weave in the history to make the connection. Uh, some of you met Archer, our, our uh, oldest grandson, and uh, on his 13th birthday, my wife and I gave him a trip to uh, the Chickamauga battlefield. <clears throat> well, 
I found out uh, in the museum in Hastings, Nebraska, where I grew up, is a picture of my great-great-grandfather, Hiram Hotelling. He fought in the Civil War. Well, that's all I knew. Uh, and then I did a little bit of research and found out that he fought in the Battle of Chickamauga. I go, oh, that's pretty cool. So my wife and I visited Chickamauga about three or four years ago. And uh, I walked up to the front desk, and the, the ranger there said, may I help you? I said, yeah, my uh, great-great-grandfather, Hiram Hotelling, uh, I understand, fought in the Battle of uh, Chickamauga. He said, uh, uh, what regiment was he with? And I said, I think it was Wisconsin uh, 14th. He said, no, he wasn't. I go, oh. He said, because the 14th never fought here, but the 10th did, the Wisconsin 10th. I said, oh, okay. He said, uh, why don't you go ahead and watch the movie? He said, uh, I'll look up some information. So we watched the movie, 15, 20-minute movie, came out. He handed me a stack an inch thick. He said, did you know that your great-great-grandfather was actually injured at Chickamauga and was sent home to Wisconsin? I go, no, I had no idea. He had a newspaper article of his homecoming uh, that he was um, eventually engaged to be married to my, what was, would be my great-great-grandmother. Anyway, I learned so much about him, I thought, that's so cool. He moved to Nebraska uh, and then met and married uh, uh, my great-great-grandmother. And uh, I don't know, there's so many stories from that information that he found out. I go, how in the world did you find all that information out? He must have a database amazing. Anyway, we're taking Archer there so he can see where his grandfather to the fourth uh, was. And he, he said... I can get you within 50 yards of where he was injured. I go, really? Because there was a lot of battles at Chickamauga. I mean, a lot of groups from all over the nation came to fight in that battle. They were like, I don't know, I'll, I'll make this up. A hundred different battles going on. So he said, you know, park here, walk a hundred steps here, you'll see a path, follow that path around in the woods. When you see the last statue, because they have statues everywhere, walk another 50 yards and you'll see another statue that's off the path but it's to Colonel whatever who led the army there. He says, it's within 50 yards of that because that's where the battle was where the Wisconsin 10th fought. Wow. Anyway, it was just kind of humbling that day when I found out, but we're looking forward to taking Archer there to have that connection with his grandfather to the fourth, you know. Uh, but I think that's the important thing about legacy is even though, like for example, in your case or my case, I might not know my great-grandfather, but I know him by way of my mom or my dad, mm -hmm. their acts, and how they, they continue that legacy. And, and you as well, knowing your great-grandfather. Yeah. Well, th thank you for, for uh, teaching class today, Mike. This was awesome. Um, now I'm going to go back and read Joshua <laughs> again so to gain some wisdom. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> would you mind leading us in prayer? I would love to. Most gracious God, uh, thank you for your presence today. Thank you for your faithfulness and your constancy in our lives. Help us always to be aware every moment of our journey that you are present and that you are available to provide us with wisdom that you see things and how you see things, insight on what we might need to do differently, and then the strength to follow through and to be faithful servants uh, in your kingdom. Thank you for everyone in this class today. For those that normally come that weren't here, whether it's due to travel or sickness or other events, bless them. Thank you for Isaac for leading this class and uh, for Carter and for, uh, for who you are in Jesus. And we're so grateful for his life, his death, 
to his resurrection and for the Holy Spirit that dwells within us now. Father, may we live every moment for your glory. In Jesus, I pray. Amen.